The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. The second city of America has drawn almost as many characters as New York or Los Angeles. It is a gateway to the Midwest and an industrial hub to rival really any in the world. Lakes, railroads, and rivers attracted people seeking fortune and a new life for generations. But many lives were ended here. In contrast to the normal pattern of this show is that these stories are grounded in a reality that is far scarier than any ghost. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. A vacant lot can be found at the 2100 block of North Clark Street between an apartment building and a retirement center. You will see many trees at this lot. Unless you know the history, this looks just like any other place in Lincoln Park. One of Chicago's bloodiest moments occurred here about 80 years ago. A warehouse was located here at the time of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The scene was very gruesome and bloody. At the time of the massacre, it was not the place for the faint of heart. This happened on Valentine's Day, as the name suggests, in 1929 at 10.30 in the morning. Seven members of the Northside gang were rounded up at the Lincoln Park garage before being forced into a line against the wall of the warehouse. They were shot and killed by people masquerading as police officers. Over 70 rounds of ammunition was used. It is suggested that these individuals had all worked for Al Capone. The target of the shooting was George Bugs Moran, a rival gang leader. He lucked out, though, and arrived at the appointed rendezvous late with his lieutenant. They witnessed officers getting out of a car, which convinced them to steer clear and duck into a nearby coffee shop away from the scene. The mistake occurred when one of Capone's lookouts mistook one of Bugs' lieutenants for Moran himself, due to them donning similar hats and coats. The conversation had been arranged in order to lure Moran under the premise that there would be an illegal shipment for him, but instead, it was Capone's men who got busted. The front half of this garage was converted in 1949, 20 years after the brutal murder. This was now an antique furniture storage shop. The people who started the business had no idea what had happened since they had just moved to the area. And due to the fact that the people from the town knew the history, it was not a very successful area that attracted tourists. 
The building was torn down a few years later, in 1967. The wall where the shooting occurred was incorporated into the wall of a men's restroom at a nightclub. A few bricks were smuggled by those who were tearing down the building. On the site where the garage once stood, there is a fenced lawn belonging to the nursing home. Five trees were planted there as well. The large tree in the middle of the yard marks the site where the brick wall once stood. Two of these killers were disguised as police, while the others wore business suits. After the shooting, when the actual policemen got there, they were holding up the ones who had shot the other people at gunpoint. This is how they made their getaway. And this is why many people believe that the police had executed them that day. The two men who had survived were Frank Gutenberg and a man named Highball. After telling police that no one had shot him, Frank Gutenberg died at the hospital. Three hours after police questioned him. In spite of being mortally wounded, the man wouldn't speak. They don't make him like that anymore. Ain't no rats in the Gutenberg household, you know what I mean? At the time of the massacre, Al Capone claimed to be nowhere near the incident. He claimed he was at his home in Florida. Though the investigation was extensive and exhausting, no one was ever convicted or tried for the murders of those who died that day, despite all of the investigations. The police and public alike were horrified by the growing number of mob-related killings. There were 64 in that year alone. As a result, a crackdown was undertaken to put an end to this menace. Al Capone, viewed as the biggest threat, was thus made the center of a federal investigation, leading to his eventual arrest. Sentenced mostly to time in Alcatraz, he was released in 1939, only to pass away eight years later. At the Mob Museum in Las Vegas, all but a hundred bricks that came from the garage wall where those men were murdered are on display. The 100 missing bricks have been sold online to many gangster buffs. A number of ghosts are said to haunt the site where the mass murders took place. The bricks taken are said to bring bad luck to people who have them. It is said that after the massacre, Capone was haunted by an entity, and it haunted him every day until he passed away. The area in which the murders occurred is also said to be haunted. Unexplained mists and lights have been seen, and voices of men can be heard when no people are around. Passerbys may feel fear and panic, and furthermore, animals have been known to act suspiciously in the vicinity of the old warehouse wall. Screaming and machine gun noises add to the eeriness of this place. Those who are especially sensitive could sense a real dread when standing close to the fence that stood where the warehouse used to be. People are said to have bad luck when they line up where the brick wall used to be. As a result of the murders, the bricks were said to have soaked up a lot of negative energy and it seeped into the ground also. The bricks were said to have been sold for $1,000 apiece when the nightclub shut down. Many of them were just given to the museum. Not because of any noble action or anything. It's because the owners of them had suffered severe bad luck. Some sources claim that the bricks were sold in a box with a diagram on how to reassemble the wall. It was hoped that one person would purchase this and rebuild it, but that never happened. In 1931, Capone used a medium to attempt to find the entity and send it back to the other side. According to reports, it was revealed that it was Moran's brother-in-law who was haunting him, who was killed in the shooting. So if you ever find yourself around North Clark Street, keep your ears open. The sounds of screams and gunfire are a common occurrence at the site, 
even when no one is around. Some people even see figures of gang members walking around the grounds of the nursing home. I would be hard-pressed to talk about this state and not mention the horrors that this genuine piece of human trash contributed. If you've been listening to the show a while, I may have mentioned that I was trying to do another show called Last Meal, something that I am very passionate about, the last meal of uh, death row inmates. And I can't talk about Illinois without mentioning John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy was an American serial killer convicted of the rape and murder of 33 teenage boys and young men between 1972 and his arrest in 1978. Gacy buried 26 of his victims in the crawl space of his home in an unincorporated Norwood Park Township of Illinois, a Chicago suburb. Three other victims were buried elsewhere on his property, while the bodies of his last four known victims were discarded in the Des Plaines River. His last four known murders were committed inside his Norwood Park residence during the early morning hours of December 21st, 1978, the day he was arrested. John Wayne Gacy Jr. was born in Chicago, Illinois, the second of three children to John Wayne Gacy Sr., a machinist, and Marion Elaine Robinson. He was of Polish and Danish heritage. He had a troubled relationship with his father, an alcoholic who abused him and called him a sissy. He was close to his sisters and mother, who affectionately called him Johnny. When Gacy was 11, he was struck in the forehead by a swing. The resulting head trauma formed a blood clot in his brain that went unnoticed until he was 16, when he began to suffer blackouts. He was prescribed medication to dissolve the clot. After attending high school for four years, Gacy dropped out before completing his senior year and left his family heading west. After running out of money in Las Vegas, Nevada, he worked long enough to earn money to travel back home to Chicago. Without returning to high school, he enrolled in and eventually graduated from Northwestern Business College. He landed himself a management trainee position with the Nunn Bush Shoe Company, followed shortly after graduation, and in 1964, Gacy was transferred to Springfield, Illinois. There he met co-worker Marilyn Myers, and they married in September of 64. He became active in local Springfield organizations, joining the JCs and rising to vice president of the Springfield chapter by 1965. Marilyn's parents, who had purchased a group of Kentucky Fried Chicken franchises, offered Gacy a job as a manager of the Waterloo, Iowa KFC, and the Gacy's moved there from Springfield. The Gacy's settled in Waterloo and had two children, a son and a daughter. Gacy worked hard at running his KFC franchise, but still found time again to join the JCs. Rumors of Gacy's homosexuality began to spread, but that didn't stop him from being named Outstanding Vice President of the Waterloo JCs in 1967. However, there was a seamier side of JC's life in Waterloo, one that involved prostitution, pornography, and drugs, in which Gacy was deeply involved. Gacy was cheating on his wife regularly. At the same time, Gacy opened a club in his basement for young boys of Waterloo, where he allowed them to drink alcohol and made sexual advances towards them. Gacy's middle-class idol in Waterloo came crashing down in March of 1968 when two Waterloo boys, aged 16 and 15, accused him of sexually assaulting them. Gacy professed his innocence, and it appeared that he might beat the charges, but in August of that year, 
he hired another Waterloo youth to beat up one of his accusers. The youth was caught and confessed all, and Gacy was arrested. Before the year was out, he was convicted of sodomy and sentenced to 10 years in the Iowa State Penitentiary. Gacy's imprisonment was rapidly followed by his wife's petition for divorce, which was final in 1969. He never saw his children again. During his incarceration, Gacy's father died from cirrhosis on Christmas Day, 1969. He was paroled in 1970 after serving 18 months. After Gacy was released, he moved back to Illinois to live with his mother. He successfully hid his criminal record until police began investigating him for his later murders. After moving in with his mother, he got a job as a chef in a Chicago restaurant. In 1971, with his mother's financial assistance, he bought a house at 8213 West Somerdale Avenue in an unincorporated area of Norwood Park Township, Cook County, which was surrounded by the northwest side Chicago neighborhood of Norwood Park. The house had a four feet deep crawl space under the floor. On February 12, 1971, Gacy was charged with disorderly conduct. A teenage boy claimed he picked him up and tried to force him into sex. The complaint was dropped when the boy did not appear in court. The Iowa Board of Parole did not learn of this, and Gacy was discharged from parole in October of 1971. On June 22, 1972, Gacy was arrested again and charged with battery of another young man. He said that Gacy flashed a sheriff's badge, lured him into a car, and forced him into sex. Again, the charges were dropped. In June of 1972, Gacy married Carol Hoff, an acquaintance from his teenage years. Hoff and her two daughters moved into the Somerdale Avenue house. In 1975, Gacy started his own business, PDM Contractors, a construction company. At the same time, his marriage began to deteriorate. The Gacy's sex life came to a halt, and John Gacy would go out late and stay out all night. Carol Gacy found wallets with IDs from young men lying around the house. Gacy began bringing in gay pornography into the house, and the Gacy's divorced in March of 1976. Gacy became active in the local Democratic Party, first volunteering to clean the party offices. In 1975 and 76, he served on the Norwood Park Township Street Lighting Committee. He eventually earned the title of precinct captain. In this capacity, he met and was photographed with First Lady Rosalind Carter, who was in town for the annual Polish Constitution Day Parade, held on May 6, 1978. Gacy was directing the parade that year for the third year in a row. Carter posed for pictures with Gacy and autographed the photo. To John Gacy, best wishes, Rosalind Carter. In the picture, Gacy is wearing an S-pin, indicating a person who has received special clearance by the United States Secret Service. During the search of Gacy's house after his arrest, this photo caused a major embarrassment to the Secret Service. One of Gacy's employees, John Butkovich, disappeared in July of 1975. John had left Gacy's employee due to a dispute over back pay he was owed. However, when Butovich's parents urged police to check out Gacy, no results came from their plea, and the disappearance went unsolved. When Gregory Godzik disappeared in December of 1976, his parents reached out to the police to investigate one of his last people he talked to him, John Gacy. Even though the police did not follow up on Gacy or his criminal history, the fact remained that he was the last person to be seen with the child. In January of 1977, 
John Schitz, an acquaintance of Gacy and his two other employees, disappeared. Later that year, another of Gacy's employees was arrested for stealing gasoline from a station. He drove a car that belonged to a man named Schitz. Gacy said that Schitz sold the car to him before leaving the area, but the police were not inclined to pursue the matter further. Gacy then started getting tired of digging holes in his crawl space. He wanted space that was available all the time. He hired one of his employees, David Cram, to make more space. Cram also stayed in the spare bedroom of his boss's house. One night, Cram came home from work and found Gacy drunk in his clown costume. They had a few drinks and then Gacy tricked Cram into the handcuffs. Gacy then started growling and began spinning Cram around the house screaming, I'm going to rape you. Cram pushed Gacy down, grabbed the key, and escaped to his room. Not all of Gacy's victims died. In March of 1978, Gacy lured Jeffrey Rignall into his car. Gacy chloroformed the young man, took him back to the house on Somerdale, raped and tortured him, and dumped him in Lincoln Park. Police drew a blank, but Rignall remembered, through the chloroform haze of the night, a black Oldsmobile, the Kennedy Expressway, and some side streets. He staked out the exit on the expressway until he saw the black Oldsmobile, which he followed to 8213 West Somerdale. Police issued a warrant and arrested Gacy on July 15th. He faced trial on a battery charge for the Rignall incident when he was arrested in December for the other murders. In December of 1977, a 19-year-old man complained that Gacy had kidnapped him at gunpoint and forced him into sex. Yet again, Chicago police took no action. Robert Peist, who at the time, who was 15, informed his mother he would be speaking with a contractor, who turned out to be John Wayne Gacy, about a better employment opportunity. He was currently working at Nissan Pharmacy in Des Plaines. He was reported missing later that day. Police requested to question John, who founded the Illinois-based PDM contractors in 1970 and was known to recruit teenage boys for work. When he failed to show up, police obtained a search warrant to search John's home and found a receipt that belonged to Nissan Pharmacy. Police got a second warrant to search John's house, and they found the bones of more than one body and the ring of a disappeared man, John Schitz. On December 21st, 1978, one of Gacy's employees told the police that Gacy had to confess to more than 30 murders. Shortly thereafter, Gacy was arrested for marijuana possession. Police took out a second warrant, went back to the house in Somerdale, and found human bones in the crawl space. After being informed that he would now face murder charges, Gacy confessed to some 25 to 30 murders, telling investigators that most were buried in the crawl space on his property and that he threw in the last five bodies after the crawl space was full, off the I-55 bridge and into the Des Plaines River, including that of Peist. Gacy drew police a diagram of his crawl space to show where the bodies were buried. Gacy told police that he would pick up male teenage runaways or prostitutes in the street and take them back to his house, with either promising them money for sex or just grab them by force. He picked up at least one of his victims at the bus station. Once they got back to his house, he would handcuff them or tie them up in another way. Gacy would often stick clothing in their mouths to muffle their screams. After this, he would choke them with a rope or a board as he sexually assaulted them. Gacy would also keep the bodies with him for as long as decomposition would allow. The police had already gone back to the house to search for more remains, mostly under the crawl space. And for the next four months, more and more human remains emerged from the house, as reporters, TV news crews, and astonished onlookers watched. 
29 bodies were found in Gacy's crawl space and on his property between December 1978 and March of 1979. The youngest victims were identified as Samuel Stapleton and Michael Marino, both 14 years old. The oldest were Russell Nelson and James Mazzara, both 21. Eight of the victims were so badly decomposed that they were never identified. Robert Peist's body was discovered on the banks of the Des Plaines River on April 9, 1978. On February 6, 1980, Gacy's trial began in Chicago. During the trial, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. However, this plea was rejected outright. Gacy's lawyer, Sam Amaranti, said that Gacy had moments of temporary insanity at the time of each individual murder, but regained his sanity before and after to lure and dispose of victims. While on trial, Gacy joked that the only thing he was guilty of was running a cemetery without a license. At one point in the trial, Gacy's defense also tried to claim that all 33 murders were accidental deaths as part of erotic asphyxia. But the Cook County coroner countered this assertion with evidence that Gacy's claim was impossible. Gacy has also made an earlier confession to police and was unable to have this evidence suppressed. He was found guilty on March 13th and sentenced to death. In the hours leading up to his execution, Gacy was offered the standard last meal of steak, fried chicken, french fries, fresh fruit, and soda, but declined this, instead asking for a dozen deep-fried shrimp, a bucket of original recipe KFC, and a half a pound of strawberries. However, what was unusual about Gacy's request was the way he chose to eat his food. According to those who witnessed Gacy's last meal, he spent an unusually long amount of time meticulously separating each shrimp from its tail and eating them one by one. He then opened up the KFC bucket and began eating the chicken skin first before moving on to the meat. And finally, he ate the strawberries by hauling them and eating them whole. Some have speculated that Gacy's methodical approach to eating his last meal was symbolic of the way he liked to kill his victims, by taking the time to carefully dismember their bodies and dispose of them in a specific way. Gacy was exerting control over them, even in death. Others have suggested that Gacy's actions were simply a case of nerves. After all, he knew he was facing execution for his crimes, and he may have been trying to prolong his last moments alive as much as possible. His execution was a minor media sensation, and large crowds of people gathered for execution parties outside the penitentiary, with numerous arrests for public intoxication, open container violations, and disorderly conduct. Vendors sold Gacy-related t-shirts and other merchandise, and the crowd cheered at the moment that Gacy was pronounced dead. According to reports, Gacy did not express remorse. His last words to his lawyer in his cell were the effect of that killing him would not bring anyone back and it's reported that his last words were, kiss my ass, which he said to a correctional officer while being sent to the execution chamber. Just after midnight on May 10, 1994, Gacy was executed by a lethal injection. Good riddance. Hey there, folks. I just wanted to pause here and uh, thank everybody who reached out to me after the conclusion of Seclusion. It's It was such a great time. I really love doing the whole audio drama type thing instead of just me talking and 
trying to do every character and change my voice terribly. Uh, it was fun to work with actors and writers and, you know, the editing and the, you know, it's very different than what I do by myself. And it was a great experience and we're going to be doing some more of those in the future. Um, so keep your ears open for those announcements. They're probably not going to be here though. I think I'm going to start a whole new channel, just a Haunted American History Presents and just do entire audio dramas on that channel. Uh, aiming to launch around Q4 this year, so probably around October, just in time for Halloween. And uh, I got some really good stories that I'm stretching out. But uh, speaking of stories, um, over on my Patreon, thank you everyone who's a member of Patreon. Um, I'm going to be, at the end of the month, and from every month from here on out, is going to be a Patreon-exclusive episode. More like the old Haunted American History, like Season 1 Haunted American History, where it's just a folklore and followed by one of my stories. And the one coming up this month is about those cute little garden gnomes that you, you find in your lawn or your garden center. It's a good one. So... Thank you, everyone, who's a member of the Patreon, and if you want to support the show and join Patreon, patreon.com slash hauntedamericanhistory, ad-free episodes, uh, early releases, and now Patreon-exclusive episodes. If you want to support the show in other ways, just uh, tell a friend, give us a share, or leave a review. Those are the best ways to help this show grow. And I couldn't have done it without you guys, because I can tell you right now, I do it with no benefit from myself. Because I have almost a zero social media presence and forget, like, advertise. I've never advertised. The only way this show has grown is by word of mouth and people just stumbling upon it. And the only way that happens is if you guys leave reviews or just tell somebody. And you've been doing it. So thank you, thank you, thank you. 1,000% thank you. And uh, let's continue with uh, the original story, Memoirs of a Clown. A couple of days ago, I listened as my sister explained to her young daughter the difference between rational and irrational fears. Choose an example. A rational fear is something you're smart to be scared of, like poisonous spiders. An irrational fear is something that's silly to be scared of, like clowns. My sister grinned at me as she said it, and I did my best grin back. Unlike the rest of my family, she's been making an effort to reach out. I appreciate her kindness, but sometimes kindness can be exhausting. Sometimes I just want people to treat me like I deserve to be treated. With reproach and disgust and hatred. I've done horrible things, and though I haven't suffered enough, I have suffered. My wife left and took our little daughter with her. I was diagnosed with lung cancer last month, even though I've never smoked cigarettes in my life. I even had to sell my house and move into this shithole. All this, and I still haven't approached atonement. I work a quiet desk job now. Nine to five. Doing no evil except punching an hour after precious hour into a time clock. But no matter how much I endure, I'll never be able to make up for what happened in my old job. You see, I used to be a clown. And let me tell you, being frightened of us is the most rational thing in the world. It all started with the squeak. I was 24 at the time. 
fresh out of law school and unable to find work. Sitting on a park bench, feeling sorry for myself, wondering how I was going to make ends meet. And then I heard it. The squeak. It was immediately followed by a chorus of laughter. Young laughter. I looked up from my bench, past the section of grass barely visible through the fallen leaves, and there he was. A clown. Surrounded by a gaggle of children, wearing party hats. Fixated on him with glee. My first instinct was slight discomfort. I never really liked clowns. Yeah, I read the Stephen King book, and that certainly contributed, but it was more than that. I didn't like the idea of a regular face behind the paint. A face that kids could never see through to. A face that could have been capable of anything. But as I watched this particular clown plod around the grass, intentionally tripping on his oversized shoes and cracking up balloon animals with the speed of nothing short of astonishing, Something shifted in my perspective. We fear clowns because we fear what we don't know, I thought. But the unknown doesn't have to be bad. The more I watched, the more entranced I became. I couldn't tell for sure, but it looked like the guy under the paint and the silly clothes was genuinely having a good time. And as I pondered over the prospect of extended unemployment, unemployment which could only be relieved by a grinding, soul-sucking job hunched over legal papers, I grew a little jealous. Suddenly, I found myself wondering, how much did this guy get paid? As much as 200 a gig, the clown whose real name was Jeff told me when I approached him after the party. And sometimes three or four gigs a day. I did the math in my head. Six to eight hundred dollars a day was definitely livable. Hell, it was more than livable. That was downright enticing. Jeff pulled out a cigarette and lit it. You don't mind, do you? He asked through a puff of smoke. I shook my head. He'd been surprisingly fast about wiping off his makeup, and the face underneath the masquerade was clean-shaven, calm, unassuming. He looked to be about 35 or 40. So is there, like, clown school or something? You have to get certified? Jeff let out a laugh that was strangely harsh. Clown school? Hell no, man. You just put the suit on and fuck around for a couple hours. You could do anything in that suit, man. Even if it's just sitting around making fart noises. If you're wearing that suit, those kids are going to laugh. So you like it then, being a clown. He grinned at me, half perplexed, half understanding. Hell yes, my friend. You'd be surprised. You get to make kids laugh. Nothing better than a kid laughing, in my humble opinion. Pay is good. You control your own schedule. And chicks actually dig it. If you can believe it. I've laid more than one fine piece, you know. A single mom or something who was grateful I made her kid's birthday party a fucking hit. He paused. And of course, there's other perks too. He emphasized that last sentence enough that I had to ask. What other perks? At this, Jeff tossed his cigarette to the ground and crushed it with his foot. Clearly meaning to go. But before he left, he reached into his pocket and handed me a card. Emblazoned with the words, Clown around with us in bold, colorful letters. Call that number if you're serious about this, he said, pointing at the series of digits at the bottom of the card. Maybe you'll find out. Five years later, my life was great. Happy, peaceful, and fulfilling in every way. I was married to a beautiful woman. We had a daughter together. And we just moved into a nice place in the suburbs. And yes, before you ask, I was a clown. I still kept in touch with some of my old law school friends. 
friends who had gone to work at the big firms and clerk for important judges. And you know what? They were all miserable as fuck. Every last one of them. They never would have admitted it, of course, but I could see it behind their eyes. The 70-hour work weeks and the endless streams of paperwork took a major toll. Here they were, in their late 20s and early 30s. The best years of a man's life if he plays his cards right, and they were drowning in the deep end. What good is a private tennis court if you never have time to play? Me? I was living within my means, but that was no problem. Clowning was fine money, and nobody raked it in more than me. I had a hunch I'd be good at it, but the truth is, I was more than good. I was a natural. Before long, I'd made a name for myself, and parents were tripping over their regular-sized shoes to get helpful the clown at their kid's birthday party. Before you roll your eyes too hard at the name, try and imagine that shtick. A clown named Helpful, who constantly tries to be helpful and constantly fails. If Helpful tried to cut the cake, it would somehow wind up in his hair. If Helpful tried to clean up a mess, it would become an even bigger one than before. Usually, I'd get someone else to guest star with me, shaking their heads exaggeratedly at all of Helpful's fuck-ups. To say the kids loved it would be a huge understatement. Yes, sir, times were good. Until the police showed up my door and led me away in handcuffs. Helpful the clown tied another balloon animal, a duck, it looked like, and led Ariel Clayton, age four, farther away from the house. He beckoned into the open backseat of a car and slammed the door behind her once she got in. Then he hustled to the driver's side door and sped the car away. I, I couldn't believe my eyes. The detective stopped the tape, which had been taken from a doorbell camera on the Clayton's home. He raised an eyebrow at me. Still sticking with your story? Tears started to flow. I, I couldn't help it. This isn't me. It isn't. I don't, I don't know who it is, but it's not me, I swear. The detective grimaced. Yeah, I know. I sat stunned. W what do you mean you know? That footage was taken just after 4 p.m. Right, I was in the backyard entertaining kids. I know. Mr. and Mrs. Clayton told us as did some of the other parents. So unless you could be in two places at once, it wasn't you. I started to feel angry. Well then, then, then why the fuck am I here? Why'd you try and make me confess to something you already know I didn't do? Just because you ain't the guy, don't mean that you don't know the guy, he responded matter-of-factly. Come on, kid. This is one of your friends. I bristled a bit at this man calling me a kid. I was almost 30. Did he think hairy forearms and rolled up sleeves gave him the right to talk down to me? All I know is this isn't me. I'm not saying any more until I talk with my lawyer. The detective leaned in right next to my face and snarled. Fine, you unhelpful piece of shit, but hear this. If something happens to that little girl, and you know anything you're not spilling your guts over here right now to, her blood is on your fucking head. Jeff listened intently to my entire story. He sat up a bit straighter when I told him that I discovered one of my spare helpful suits had gone missing. So it has to be somebody I know, right? I asked, bewildered. Either that or some random person broke into my house and kiffed my fucking suit. Yeah, man, that about covers it, he said through a cloud of smoke. 
I had no idea how Jeff afforded so many cigarettes. Hell, I had no idea how he afforded the vast majority of his stuff, I thought as I looked around his living room. The latest in entertainment systems, a stunning grand piano, elegant bookshelves completely filled with leather bindings. I mean, being a clown paying the bills, but I didn't see how I could pay for all this. Somehow, in our five years of friendship, I'd never worked up the courage to ask. So what are you going to do? He asked. What can I do? I fully cooperated with the authorities and they don't want anything more from me. They know I don't know anything, still. I paused, contemplating my situation. I don't know if I can keep clowning. I mean, the helpful brand already took a pretty big hit. I doubt I can recover from this. Already, my appointments are getting canceled. Nobody wants to fuck with this clown thing anymore. That's bullshit, he said dismissively. It'll calm down. Kids get jacked all the time. If it was some dude in a plumber suit, folks wouldn't stop hiring a plumber, they'd move on. Just lay low for a while, then your business will build back up. Easy for you to say, I said, gesturing around to the grand living room. Finally, I could take no more. I had to know. Dude, how do you afford all this stuff? I still live on a budget, and I get more gigs than you do. He laughed a cold, bitter sound. <laughs> yeah, you do get more gigs than me. Almost accusatory. Sorry, I said quickly. Hey, listen, I'm going to run down to use the bathroom. I was halfway down the hall when he called my name. I poked my head back up into the room. What's up? I'm remodeling that bathroom. Use the one downstairs. Third door on the left. I shrugged and headed down the stairs. When I stepped into the main room in the basement, I realized that I've never been down here before. But I immediately saw why. In contrast to the impeccable floor above me, the basement was utterly dilapidated. I walked through in disbelief, wondering how somebody could stand to live on top of such filth. An intensely strong odor filled the air, and it seemed to be coming from behind a closed door at the beginning of the hallway. Despite my misgivings, I opened it, and a wave of the smell nearly brought up the contents of my stomach. Covering my nose and mouth, I looked in the room. I don't know what I expected, but this is what I saw. The room was empty save for one small twin-sized bed on the floor. The floor was covered with piles of shit and vomit. Bloodstains smeared the walls. The last thing I saw was a collection of leather straps on the mattress. A muzzle. You alright down there? Jeff called down from the top of the staircase. I nearly jumped out of my skin. Yeah. Yeah, I'm good. I called back, quietly closing the door to that awful room and making my way down to the third door on the left. The one Jeff had just told me was the bathroom. I swung the door open, and my bladder let go. It wasn't a bathroom at all. It was a closet, and only one item of clothing hung within. My spare helpful the clown suit. So, yeah, we need to talk. I whirled around. Jeff was standing about 20 feet away from me, smiling, blocking the hallway. I backed myself into the closet, feeling the clown suit brush up against my neck. Stay away from me, I demanded feebly. He laughed. <laughs> Calm the fuck down, man. I ain't gonna hurt you. Besides, I need you for this next part. What are you talking about? Listen, we need to pin this on someone else, my man. I can't keep that thing in my closet for much longer. That suit is public enemy number one right now. You... You're not going to kill me? I stammered. Why would I kill you? We're, we're friends, dude, remember? I'm the one who got you into this game in the first place. Now, nah, you're going to go home, get some rest, and I'll figure out who's going to take the fall for this shit. Lots of cops driving by here lately, you know? Maybe I'm paranoid. 
His voice trailed off. And how do you know I won't report you, I asked. Why do you trust me? Well, you're already the person of interest. How do you think it's going to look if the kidnapper turns out to be your best friend? Think you'll be able to convince a jury you had nothing to do with this? Maybe, but I doubt it. Especially with all that money I just gave you. Money? You didn't give me shit, I said bewildered. Check your bank account. I pulled out my phone and selected my bank's app. Sure enough, Jeff had wired me a sizable sum just a few minutes ago. $50,000. You son of a bitch. <laughs> That's gratitude for you. Jeff said easily, as though we were just talking about the goddamn weather. Now listen, you've got a choice to make here, so make it carefully. You can work with me, and that money will keep coming. As long as you do everything I say, you'll get a payment of 50 grand every month. Your other choice? Go to jail for a long time. I began to hyperventilate. What? What are you? I gasped. S some kind of pervert? Ha! <laughs> You think I diddled that kid? You're out of your mind. I kept her here for a couple days, and then I sold her. She left this morning. My head was spinning. I grabbed the doorframe for support. Sold her? You sold her? To who? Fuck if I know. But nobody's ever going to find her again. That you can be sure of. And he was right. I never saw Ariel Clayton again. To the best of my knowledge, nobody did. And she wasn't the only one. There were so many. So many children. To this day, I don't know who we sold them to, and I don't know what became of them. All I know is that once they saw the clown, their lives would never be the same. I didn't like it. I never did. But I had no choice. Jeff gave me a quota. One child a month. If I failed to provide, it guaranteed me my daughter would be next. Apparently there were others like me. Guys who got involved in clowning because it seemed like a way to make kids happy. Guys who wound up getting caught in the most despicable underground trade imaginable. Some of them, like Jeff, came to like it. The power, the control, the money. Others, like me, couldn't handle it. There is no sight worse in this world than the child's face when he realizes he's made a terrible mistake. That he shouldn't have lusted after that balloon armadillo. That smiling clown face, those squeaky shoes. That his parents, who spent so much time lecturing him about things that must have seemed so trivial, were right about stranger danger after all. Sometimes he cries, sometimes he screams, and sometimes he just sits there quietly as his innocence slowly floats away. But without fail, he is simply too small and fragile and weak to stop it. I never hurt them. I never touched them. I don't think any of us did, actually. But I doubt the same can be said to the people we sold them to. I'm not stupid. I know I bathe in those sins. That's why I could never treat my daughter the same once it all began. That's why my wife finally had enough. I don't know if I believe in karma, but this life I live now is a convincing argument for it. The lung cancer is extraordinarily painful. The loneliness is almost overwhelming. The guilt is so heavy, I feel I may be crushed. But maybe the worst thing of all is the fear. You see, when I finally managed to extract myself from the business, not all the clowns were on board with that. Some wanted to put a bullet in my head right then and there. Eventually, it was decided that I could leave. 
but it was made very clear to me that if I breathed a word of this to the authorities, my daughter would be taken. I want to turn back the clock and take everything I've done, but I know I can't. So I want to at least do something to make this right now. I didn't say anything when my sister told her daughter, who was about the same age as Ariel Clayton was when she was taken, that clowns are in irrational fear. But I can pass the word along to you. Please, tell your children. Be afraid of clowns. Be very afraid. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. Every town has its dark history. Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM Podcast Network and check out Hometown Ghost Stories if you're brave enough. (laughs) 